morning, people come from all different directions, all different places, all different circumstances of life. Many are going through tremendous trials today, some with cancer, others having lost a loved one. Still others have children that are not believers and their heart aches over these. We have various pains and illnesses. Some of us are struggling spiritually, Lord. Sin has dominated lives and ransacked relationships. And so we come to the psalm that you have provided for us today to lift up our eyes to heaven, to seek a balm, a medicine for our wounds and our souls. We pray that you would enliven the word by your spirit and enable us to grasp the goodness of the Lord and find deep satisfaction in your care and eternal life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Very often, the worst circumstances in life bring about our greatest worship. There's a desperation that causes us to, to turn to the only resource that we can find to bring that help and comfort that we need. When the prophet Jonah just radically disobeyed the Lord and ran in the wrong direction... He found himself in the belly of a great fish. But in the belly of the fish, he cried out to God and he crafted what we see in Jonah chapter 2 as one of the, the best prayers in Scripture. And God saved him from death. Job is told, you've lost all of your crops and all of your servants and all of your animals and worst of all, all ten of your children are dead. It says at this worst of all times, in that desperate moment, he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our very best worship often comes from our darkest moments. Have you experienced that? In the psalm before us, we have David, the king of Israel, and he is a, a desperate man. His recent life has looked this way. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has her husband killed... She becomes pregnant with his child and he's confronted by the prophet Nathan and he repents and he's forgiven by the Lord but there are consequences and the child is going to die shortly after birth. And in this dark time we find David worshiping. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 16 it says, David therefore inquired of God for the child and David fasted. And he went and lay all night on the ground. 
Note here that sometimes the most despicable sinners become the most desperate worshipers. We should observe here that that God forgives and receives worship from the most wretched sinners. Let that sink in for a moment. Aren't you glad that is true? When you have sinned greatly, rather than banishing you from his presence, God wants you to come into his presence and worship. That is why God sent his son, isn't it? He was sent to die on the cross for our sins. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, To bring us to God. David's sins lead to further tragedy in his household. His son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar. His son Absalom kills his son Amnon. His son Absalom leads a rebellion and David has to go on the run. He's running from his, for his life from his own son. Can you imagine that? 2 Samuel 15 verse 23 describes him passing over the brook Kidron into the way of the wilderness. Psalm 63 opens like this. It says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness. Are you like David this morning? Are you like David? Are you in a wilderness of life? Have you experienced tragic and painful circumstances? Are you having trouble breathing today? Do you feel like the air is being sucked out of you and you're, you're going further down into the quicksand? Do you feel as though the jackals and the vultures and the hyenas and the snakes are ready to devour your flesh? Well, you know what time it is? It's time to worship. Today, David is going to teach you and me how to worship in troubled times. In Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5, David answers five questions for us about worshiping God with passion in troubling times. The first question is simply, who should we worship? Who should we pursue in worship? Look at verse 1. David says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David says that we should pursue God. Notice, God, you, God, you, you, you. The object of your passion is to be God. He's, he's expressed as a person here that can be talked to. The object of David's passion is simply God. He says, oh God. That simple little expression is teeming with faith. 
it expresses that in your darkest times, you believe that there is a supernatural personal being who cares for you, who hears you, and is able and willing to do something for you and in you in your darkest trial. Just saying, oh God. The very fact that you would have this awareness and this desire to cry out to God shows that you have the gift of faith. That the Holy Spirit has done this regenerating work in you and it is by the Spirit that you now want to cry out, Abba, Father. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. I've always been struck by this verse. It just is powerful. It's striking. None of you have seen God. If you have, I'd like to talk with you afterwards. <clears throat> but I don't believe any of you have seen God, and yet there are people in this room that love him. We have trouble loving people that we do see. He says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Wow. That's what God does in your life. You come to believe in him. You come to love him. And the more you know him, the more he works in your life, and the more you pray to him and read his word, the more joy you have just overflowing and overflowing. But in those dark times, it's tough because it drives you away from God. Sometimes. But that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at how we should respond to these times, to, to be drawn to God. In the New Testament, we know God, when we say, oh God, we know him as the triune God. We know God as our Father. We know God as the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know God as the Holy Spirit. Now, David doesn't just cry out to God, oh God. He expresses that God is his own possession. He says... You are my God. See, that's more than him just being a general God out there that you believe in. He is God who made a covenant with his people. He's made promises. And he said over and over in the Old Testament, you will be my people and I will be your God. My people. Your God. He's my God. This is applied to the church as well in the New Testament. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with him. He is your God. I can say he is my father. Jesus is my savior. The Holy Spirit is my sanctifying God who indwells in me. So David throws himself into the loving arms 
of the everlasting creator covenant God who, would, who could just summon a myriad of angels at that very moment and help him. This is what we should do as well. In your times of darkest troubles, cry out, O oh God, you are my God. Now, knowing and loving this personal God causes us to pursue him with passion. And David shows us that pursuing God with passion involves seeking and thirsting. David teaches us to pursue God as you would a treasure. He goes on in verse 1, he says, I shall seek you earnestly. Earnestness means with sincerity and intense conviction. When you lose something of value, you will leave no stone unturned until you find it, won't you? And sometimes what we have lost in our sin or in our trials is that sense of closeness to God. You ever felt that? Where are you, God? What's going on here? Well, it's at these times that we need to seek after God. The other day, my granddaughter was here, and she was playing hide-and-go-seek with some friends of hers. And I have to tell you that her friends were not very good at hiding. And she was not very good at finding. <laughs> so I watched this, and eventually, she was calling out to them, and they called out to her, and she saw them, and she found them. They were hiding in plain view. <laughs> I just want to tell you that God is in plain view. He's not hiding from you in your darkest times. He is easy to find. All you have to do is seek. In times like these, these tough times, we can become spiritually dry that's why David shows us to pursue God as you would for water in a desert. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. This would certainly describe David's personal surroundings while he is in the desert. But the satisfaction that David seeks is not a physical one. It is spiritual. Only God can satisfy this longing of the soul. Only God can quench this spiritual thirst. Water is absolutely vital for physical life, isn't it? And think about this. The, the thirstier you are, the more you think about water, don't you? Well, the thirstier you are for God, the more you will think about Him. God is absolutely vital for spiritual life. 
Oswald Chambers said this. He said, there is only one being who can satisfy that last aching abyss of the human heart. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus often presents himself in the Gospels as the one to seek for satisfaction. He's the source of the satisfaction that we need. And he presents this as thirsting. To the woman at the well, he said in John 4, 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now you must remember that eternal life is not just talking about longevity. Yes, you'll live forever. (laughs) But John chapter 17 verse 3 is a very important definition of eternal life that Jesus gives. He says... This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is a a fully satisfying, thirst-quenching, hunger-ending relationship with God. It's a relationship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's brought about by the regenerating, quickening, enlightening, adopting, union with Christ, bringing Holy Spirit. Do you have that? Are you thirsty for Jesus? Have you come to know Jesus? Do you feel, do you see today in the hearing of the word your lack of a relationship with God, your your lack of salvation? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give you something to drink. He will give you himself. He will give you himself as the Savior who has died for your sins. And he will give you forgiveness and this eternal life he has spoken of here. So with these expectations and expressions of worship in mind, David instructs us through a second question. What should we pursue from God in worship? We should pursue his power and his glory. Look at verse 3. David writes... Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He says, I'm thirsty, I'm yearning, I'm seeking. And what I want to see is your power and your glory in my situation here. A smoother translation here might be, So in the sanctuary I have seen you beholding your power and your glory. The sanctuary was the place where they kept the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. It was the place that represented the personal dwelling of God among his people. And it was out from the Ark, sometimes which was in the most holy place, that there would be a light 
emanating. There would be the brilliance of the, the glory cloud could be seen. And sometimes uh, the, the powerful uh, force of God would be seen in you know, somebody touching the Ark of the Covenant and, and dying. Or God giving victory over his enemies because he was in their midst and they carried the Ark into battle. In our trials, we should want to see God's power and His glory. So what you need to see, first of all, is His power. And we ought to pray, Lord, show me your power. I need power. It's true that for David and for Israel, the demonstration of God's power was often the defeat of their enemies. But in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of the tabernacle is Jesus. And power in the New Testament is marked not by defeat of enemies, but by demonstrations of miracles, of signs and wonders that authenticated Jesus as the Messiah and his apostles as apostles. He also, Jesus demonstrates his power and his defeat of sin and Satan and death through the power of the resurrection from the dead, right? In the New Testament, it is the power of the Spirit to regenerate and to sanctify us. So consequently, we see that God is always more interested in changing you than he is in changing your circumstances. For instance, Paul prayed three times for the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh, didn't he, in 2 Corinthians 11. The thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan to torment him. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. Wow. We can learn from the Apostle Paul, can't we? We should want to see his power at work in our lives. As you're going through these trials, God has a purpose for them. He's changing you. He's shaping you. He's wanting to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He's wanting to make you more loving. He's wanting to make you more patient. He's wanting to make you more kind. He's wanting to make you more faithful. He's wanting to make you be like Jesus. We should also want to see God's glory in our trials. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Moses is supposed to lead God's people through the wilderness, and he knows that he can't do this unless God goes with him. And God has promised his 
presence. But Moses says, I pray you, show me your glory. I love that. Show me your glory. When I was being discipled as a young man in high school, there was a leader who would meet with me, and this guy had a passion for Christ. And, and he, he would just <laughs> grab hold of my shoulders, and he said, Brian, you need to pray to God. Show me your glory. Well, that had an impact. You see, in the next chapter, chapter 34, Paul, uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and it says in verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God showed him who he was in all of his attributes, what he can expect of the glory of God is to see God operate in these things. His compassion and his grace, his truth, his loving kindness, his forgiveness of sins, his justice. Verse 8, we see Moses' response. It says, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. When we pray in our trials, we should pray, God, show me your glory. And look for it. Look for how God is glorifying himself in the midst of your trial. Where do you see his attributes? Where do you see his compassion and his forgiveness and his loving kindness and his mercy and his grace? Where do you see his justice? And pray that God would perform providential miracles. It's certainly okay to pray for healing. But despite what some of our charismatic brethren might believe, God usually doesn't heal, does he? Right? God may not change your circumstances. They might get worse, in fact. But you can bet God will change you. One way to think about God showing his glory is, is to pray in such a way that God will answer in such a way that only he could get the credit. And I love Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all... I don't even have enough wingspan here. 
that we ask or think. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are way beyond our ways. So we pray and we let him work. So yes, seek God, yearn for God, long to see his glory and his power. The third question David answers for us is in verse 3, why should we pursue God in worship? Well, certainly to it involves what we have just discussed to see his power and glory. But David tells us the why. He tells us the motivation for earnestly seeking the Lord in verse 3. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. Your loving kindness is better than life. Now life is pretty good, isn't it? This verse compares two things, and both are good, loving kindness and life. Life is precious, and you, you become especially aware of it if you're dying of thirst in the desert. Most everybody acknowledges that life is good. That's why most of us try to do whatever we can to prolong it. Many of us would want to do it whatever the cost I mean, that's why you would give a thief your money instead of your life. You might submit to painful surgeries, even amputation, to restore what manner of life you might have. We'll go through treatments like chemotherapy and radiation if it will prolong our lives. Satan even uses this desire to prolong life to slander a righteous Job. In Job 2.4, he says, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. He believed, that he, believed he could get Job to curse God because he afflicted his body. For most people, life is the greatest of all possessions. And if a person is healthy and well provided for, he may not feel himself needing God at all. But David says that there's something vastly more precious than life, and it's God's loving kindness. Your translation of the Hebrew word kesed here might be steadfast love or loyal love or gracious love or mercy but I think you get the idea. It's a great thing. It stresses the fact that you're being loved by God in a steady, unchanging, faithful way. And the experience of that relationship of love is better than the best life itself. Life can be lost, can it? But his love will never be for those who are his. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. And it's better than life. If God is your God, if you belong to him, then he is going to powerfully and continuously and tenderly love you in this life and into eternity. Isn't it a wonder that we, find, we try to find so many things that will satisfy us in this life? That we have so many passions and desires that many times we complain because they, they go unfilled. And we spend so little time seeking and enjoying a relationship with God. It is better not to exist than to exist without God's love. And it's better to die enjoying God's loving kindness than to have lived without it. In response to this satisfying love of God, David answers another question. How should we pursue God in worship? If you look at the second half of verses Verse 3 through verse 5, you'll see this. You'll see some means of passionate worship. It says, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to you in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise with joyful Lips. You get the emphasis. They're body parts, right? God created us in his image. And he gave us our lips, our mouth, and our hands to be a means of worship. He gave us our bodies so that we'd be able to do things that constitute different postures of prayer in the Bible. You have lots of these. You have kneeling, standing, laying down on your face before the Lord, reclining on your bed, meditating in the night watches. We also, he also gave us mouths and lips to, to extol him, to bless him, to sing his praise. In our worship here, we, we do use our lips and our mouths a lot. We, we sing, we, we preach, we express our prayers to God. But you don't see too many people in our church raising their hands, do you? There are a few. And why is that? They're, they're, it may be because of the tradition in which you were raised. That's probably it for me. And sometimes it's because in our present day, in our, at least in American Christianity, maybe others, 
if you raise your hands, it's associated more with charismatic worship, which we would have some differences in doctrine and belief with charismatics. You may be someone who would ordinarily raise your hands, but you feel inhibited because very few other people do. Maybe we should have an announcement. For those that feel free raising your hands, go to the fellowship hall. <laughs> so you can find out who each other are. Some may want to raise their hands, but they feel uncomfortable because they might stick out. They wonder what people think about them. And there are those who don't like it when you raise your hands because they think you're drawing attention to yourself or they judge you to be a charismatic or it simply makes them feel uncomfortable. But regardless of all that, let me just tell you that it is biblical. It's a biblical practice. And I just want you to be free in your conscience to do so if you would like to. What is the practice of lifting one's hands as you study through the scriptures? You see, this lifting of hands toward heaven, it's, it's a sense that God is transcendent, that, that he is in the heavens, he does what he pleases. You're directing your prayers and your worship to him. Sometimes in the Old Testament they lifted their hands, it says, in the direction of the sanctuary. Because again, that was a symbol of his presence, the, where God was. Now interesting verses, Lamentations chapter 3 verse 41, it connects the hands and the heart together. It says we lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. So you can kind of see that as a picture, you know, my heart, my love for God, my seeking God, my yearning for God, my desire for God causes me to just want to reach towards God and speak to him, sing to him, worship him. If you are inhibited from raising your hands in worship, Give it a try sometime. In fact, we're commanded that there ought to be some hand raising in our public services because Paul writes, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Now, if you do it when we pray, nobody will see you. Because most of their eyes are closed. But closed eyes in prayer is not required either. You can pray like Jesus. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. John 17, 1. Of course, now the the verses that we're talking about here have a, an emphasis upon the mouth and the lips and what is actually expressed. The heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so the message for worshipers involves praising God and blessing Him. 
David says this. He says, my lips will praise you. There are two Hebrew words for praise here in these verses. The first one, translated praise in verse 3, is the rare Hebrew word shabak. And it pictures using words that would give somebody honor. So in this case, it is we're honoring God. We're, we're praising him for who he is and what he has done. We're giving him the honor that he deserves. You could do this by telling God about his attributes. You know, God, you are so gracious. You are so kind. You're so forgiving. You're so loving. You're so just. I'm so glad you're sovereign, God. I'm so glad you're the king. I'm so amazed that you're the creator of everything that I see. I, I'm amazed that you've created us in the image of God. And you could just go on and on. Just extolling God and who he is and, and thanking him for what he has done. The second word for praise appears in verse 5. It is the word halal. Does that sound familiar? Halal? Hallelujah? That's where we get the, the word hallelujah. It's transliterated from that. David says, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Halals are usually cheerful songs or expressions of, of exclamation. And no wonder it is coupled here with joyful lips. So there's, there's this joyful expression and exclamation and singing of just excitement and gladness for what God has done. I want you to try this in your life when you're going through trials. To, to start to just make yourself praise God and thank God. You will gain a different perspective as you do that, won't you? I mean, it's kind of hard to go, okay, God, you're, you're great. You're loving you're kind. Okay, God, you're starting to convince me. Uh, you know, it, you can't go down that path too far without starting to get some joy and contentment and peace, even though your circumstances don't change. In between these two words for praise, we have the statement, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will bless you. That's interesting. When God blesses us, we think of the fact that we're better off now because he's given us something or he's done something to us or he's done something for us. He's, he's blessed us. But we can't really give him anything that would make him better off, can we? But we can certainly recognize him as the source of all blessings and the blessed one and recognize him and give him these praises, this thanks, and even our obedience is a blessing to God. John Piper says, to bless God means to recognize his great riches, 
strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. Well, that leads David now to answer our fifth question. What will result from pursuing God in worship? What will result from pursuing God in worship? When you seek the Lord, when you thirst for Him, when you yearn for Him, when you long to see His power and His glory, when you're motivated by His loving kindness, seeing it as better than life, when you begin to praise and bless the Lord and your joy returns, guess what? You are satisfied. That's what we can expect. That's what's going to result from pursuing God in worship is satisfaction. David says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. How many of you like to eat? The picture here is of somebody who's hungry sitting down at a banquet. The best food. And he eats and he's fully satisfied. The two words translated marrow and fatness are actually words that you are used to, to be a metaphor to describe the best and choice parts. See, when it says marrow, you know, it's, it's not telling us there was a guy that I knew in high school and he would, he would crack the bones of chicken. I mean, he would eat every single part of a piece of chicken. He would break the bones and he would get all the marrow out of the bones. That's not what it's talking about here. These words can also be used to describe the, the choice parts, the best parts. Maybe some of you think marrow and fatness is the best part, but you should think more like the filet mignon, the porterhouse steak, the, the New York strip cooked to perfection by Gabriel. These are satisfying for physical hunger. So whatever it recognizes or symbolizes, it's, it's to physically satisfy you, your, your hunger. But worship satisfies the soul, the inner person where, where all of that worry and that trial, and the troubling, and the thoughts of despair and losing hope and feeling mistreated, and all of those attitudes and unfulfilled desires and expectations, when they create this turmoil within us, worship releases it and satisfies us in God. So David began... In verse 1, thirsty, yearning, and seeking. And he ends in verse 5, satisfied. I submit to you that this is a great paradigm when you find yourself in one place to get to the other. 
what brought about this transformation. Seeking and yearning for God. Looking for his power and his glory in your circumstance. Realizing that his loving kindness is better than life. Praising him with joyful lips. Lifting your hands to his name and blessing him. All of that was involved in bringing him from thirsty to satisfied. And David says, I will do this as long as I live. What about you? Let's pray. Father, what a passage of Scripture. What a gift you have given to your church to help us to deal with all of our longings and all of our trials, all of our tribulations. There are people here today that find themselves hurt, anxious, weary, longing, unfulfilled, dissatisfied, discontent, aching hearts over brokenness, lonely, isolated. And what they need, Lord, is worship. Empower them, Lord, by your spirit to be moved, to yearn and seek after you, to, to want to taste and see that you are good. Lord, make us into worshipers. Let these people leave fully satisfied in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.